0: Today's reading is John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. Listen now to the word of the Lord. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven now. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hand,
1: the lord be with you
0: I I the lord, lord bless you
1: thank I you welcome welcome uh, this is now the fourth sunday of the easter season and we continue continue to look at those who encounter the resurrected jesus mary magdalene was the first to see the risen christ declared i have seen the lord Last week, Cleopas and Mary testified, the Lord has risen indeed. And today, we'll hear about Thomas, who will proclaim, my Lord and my God. But before I get to the sermon, uh, I have a correction and a reminder and some news to share with you. First, the correction. Last Sunday, in stating the conditions for resuming indoor hybrid services, I mistakenly said that we are using our original metric of waiting until the cases of uh, COVID fall below 10 positive cases per 100,000 people. Uh, The committee actually recommended and the session approved using a more inclusive measure, something known as the New Jersey COVID Activity Level Index or the uh, New Jersey Cali. Without getting into all the details, uh, practically speaking, it's likely we will be allowed to resume indoor hybrid services when the number of positive cases fall below 25, rather than 10 per 100,000 people. If the recent and rather dramatic downward turn in the number of cases continues, it's possible that we will meet the criteria to hold indoor services at reduced capacity in just a few weeks. Now the reminder, Next Sunday, we will hold an outdoor service, weather permitting, at the New Brunswick Seminary. Again, everyone is invited and welcome to come. There's no age limit, there's no registration, uh, and we're asking if all of you can come to come. We also encourage you to bring your own lawn chairs, or if you don't have one or prefer, you can bring a, a blanket to sit on the grass instead. The services will be live streamed on Zoom, so if you're not comfortable gathering in person, you can continue to worship online. Uh, You can look for uh, further announcements uh, later this week. And some good news. Uh, I know some of you have heard this already, but uh, Sam proposed to Ann earlier this week and Ann accepted. So uh, please join me in congratulating Sam and Ann on their engagement. And we look forward to their uh, life together uh, in the near future. All right, please pray with me. Lord, we uh, thank you for this day that you have made once again, that we are able to gather together uh, in this space. We ask God, um, help us to thrive in this season. And even in this space, to hear your word and in the hearing of your word, to be challenged, to be strengthened, and to obey. We ask these things in the name of our risen Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So in today's reading, you heard that there were two encounters with the resurrected Jesus, separated by eight days. Let me remind you that immediately before this first encounter, on the evening of the first Easter Sunday, some of the disciples had seen the empty tomb and Mary Magdalene had told them, I have seen the Lord after she had seen him. But the disciples did not believe her testimony and they're afraid that their association with Jesus might lead to their own arrest and crucifixion. And that is why they are hiding behind locked doors. But just as Jesus revealed himself to Mary in her grief, Just as Jesus revealed himself to Cleopas and Mary in their hopelessness, Jesus reveals himself now to his disciples in their fear. I hope that is an encouragement to you, that Jesus shows up in our weaknesses, in our grief, in our hopelessness, and in our fear. He comes to us as we are and not as we imagine how we ought to be. It's incredible grace. Jesus comes to a group of fearful, unbelieving, undeserving disciples and brings peace, calls them to mission and gives them the gift and the power of the Holy Spirit just as he had promised. And this is the beginning of the church. Now, for reasons unknown, Thomas was absent during this first appearance to the disciples. So the other disciples tell him, what just happened? Echoing the testimony of Mary, we have seen the Lord. The grammar here indicates ongoing action. That is the disciples were repeatedly saying to Thomas, trying again and again to convince him that they had seen the Lord. And isn't it fitting that they are not able to convince Thomas, just as they did not believe Mary's testimony So Thomas also does not believe their testimony. But Thomas goes even further and he insists that unless I see his hands, in his hands, the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas doesn't just want to see Jesus. He doesn't just want to touch those wounds. He wants to It's not like he just wants to place his hands gingerly and gently on his body. The word translated as place has the primary meaning of to thrust or to throw, strike, even assault. It's like Thomas wants to really grab the body and and, and the wounds to make absolutely certain that this is Jesus and that he has really been bodily resurrected. Resurrected. So, eight days later, Jesus appears again behind closed doors, and this time Thomas is present. As he did in his previous appearance, Jesus blesses them with a word of peace. And then he specifically reaches out to Thomas to answer his ultimatum, and Jesus presents his body for examination. But when Thomas sees and hears Jesus, it appears to be enough for him. And without actually touching the wounds, As he had earlier demanded, Thomas declares, my Lord and my God. Dorothy Sayers points out in her play, The Man Born to be King, that this is the clearest attribution of Jesus as God that we have in the entire Bible. It is the only place where the word God is used of Jesus without qualifications of any kind and in the most unambiguous form of words. Now, as Christians, Thomas's declaration no longer shocks us. But for Jewish followers, whose primary concern about God is that there is only one God, this declaration that Jesus is God would be unimaginably blasphemous and would never even be considered, let alone uttered. Yet this is precisely what Thomas does. And this is the claim the climax, the conclusion of the gospel. John started with, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And now the gospel comes to a close. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. The gospel is clear on this point. Jesus, the eternal word of God, now risen from the dead, is not just the Lord or the Messiah, but he is God. I know this story of Thomas is quite familiar to you. So let me introduce three unfamiliar words as a way of reflecting on this story with you today. First, transphysicality. Transphysicality. This is a made-up word that I just Learn recently. It's a word that N.T. Wright suggests in describing Jesus's resurrected body in his comprehensive study of the resurrection, the resurrection of the Son of God. In the resurrection stories, we have seen now that Jesus's bodily appearance is unusual and unexpected. On the one hand, <clears throat> his body is like a regular human body, just like yours and mine. He carries the wounds and the scars from the crucifixion. He talks, he walks, he eats, and he can be touched. He is human enough that he can be mistaken for an ordinary local gardener or a fellow traveler walking on the road to Emmaus. Yet on the other hand, there is something different about him that makes it difficult for even those who knew him to immediately recognize him. And of course, there is the fact that he's able to show up inside closed and locked doors and to disappear in the middle of dinner as he did with Cleopas and Mary last week. N.T. Wright calls this quality, this mixture of the natural and the supernatural in his body, the transformed physicality, trans-physicality. Again, we're used to this depiction of this mixture because we regularly hear the story of Jesus' resurrection. But N.T. Wright points out that there is nothing like this in Jewish or Greco Roman literature. Similarly, John Polkinghorne, former professor of mathematical physics at Cambridge University, argues that had the church wanted to make up a story of the resurrection, they had two well-known options. One would be to depict Jesus as a dazzling heavenly figure, something like what we see in the transfiguration in Matthew 17, where Jesus was transfigured and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. They could have borrowed from the imagery of passages like Daniel 12, where we are told that those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So this is one possibility of a heavenly being that's just glowing. The other option would have been to have Jesus reappear simply as a resuscitated corpse. For example, in the Old Testament, The prophet Elijah raised the son of the widow of Zarephath back to life. And the prophet Elisha similarly raised the son of the Shumanite woman back to life. In the New Testament, the apostle Peter raised Dorcas and the apostle Paul raised Eutychus. And Jesus himself also raised the son of the widow of Nain, the daughter of Jairus and Lazarus back to life. And all those stories They came back to life exactly as they were before their death. They looked the same. No one had any trouble recognizing them as they were, and no one commented that anything was unusual about their appearance. But Jesus' body is different. It is neither brilliant light nor a merely resuscitated body. Jesus' body is continuous with his former body, clearly recognizable, but it has also been transformed. The Apostle Paul hints at this when he writes about a spiritual body in 1 Corinthians 15. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. It's really hard to imagine that the church or anyone else simply made up the trans physicality of Jesus's resurrection. They would far more likely have drawn from the religious traditions or from the legends embedded in their culture. Instead, they insist on something that no one had imagined before. Like the presence of women as the first eyewitnesses, this oddity, this oddity of transphysicality of the body points to the truthfulness of the eyewitness accounts and strengthens our trust in their reliability. The second reflection I want to make with you is that Thomas did not doubt. He disbelieved. When confronted by the incredulous testimony of the resurrection from the other disciples, Thomas said, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, from this, we assumed that he was doubting. But Thomas's problem wasn't doubt. It was unbelief. And even though doubting Thomas is a common nickname, I want to remind you, as I've done before, that the word doubt never appears in our story. In fact, the word doubt never appears in the entire Gospel of John. Now, you can have Doubts legitimate doubts, that is genuine questions about your faith or about anything else. Genuine doubt and honest questions are not a problem when it comes to faith. They will strengthen faith. They will make your faith real. Faith rests on truth and truth is resilient. It will not crumble under your honest questions. Mike McCargue writes, doubt is a gift. It means the way you see God is fraying at the edges and maybe it needed to. None of us have God mastered. And a lack of doubt just means you aren't thinking about the ways you could be wrong. Doubt in this sense is a perfectly normal, good, and needed experience of faith. I told you a few weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, that my son regularly claims that the Popeye chicken sandwich is the best. You can legitimately doubt and question that claim. But if you're serious, you could go and buy that sandwich and taste it and decide for yourself. You don't have to remain in doubt. You don't have to keep on Doubting. Now, I understand that there are many other doubts about our faith that are not so easily answered. However, I want to suggest to you that much of what we pose as doubt is really just a cover or a polite way of saying unbelief. For example, There are those who say that they are agnostic when it comes to faith, meaning that they don't know or they can't decide whether or not God exists. It may sound humble, and it may be that a few have actually thought this through, that they have studied religion and philosophy and came to this conclusion. But for most, I suspect, what they really mean is that I'm not really gonna think about this, and practically speaking, They have decided that there is no God. Self proclaimed atheists, at least, are more straightforward about their unbelief. I know today there are those who have expressed doubt on many, many things. There are those who have expressed doubt on the efficacy of vaccines in general. And the COVID vaccine in particular. Others have expressed doubt about the legitimacy of the last presidential election, the reality of systematic systemic racism, the consequences of global warming, the validity of evolutionary theory and big bang cosmology, and you know we can go on and on and on. Now I believe, Some are humbly and genuinely asking honest questions and have genuine doubts. That's all well and good. But for many, it's simply unbelief. The language of doubt suggests that people are open to correction and new evidence and that they have not yet made up their minds. But in reality, much of what we call doubt or express as doubt, we have already decided. And we have shut ourselves off from further evidence and conversation. We are usually not doubters, we are unbelievers. And it's really hard to have conversation when we have made up our minds. But this, for me, is where Thomas gives me hope. He said he would never believe unless a particular condition was met but surrounded by a community who accepted his unbelief, he was willing to be corrected and to believe, and not only to believe, but to make the greatest confession in the gospel. Thomas's unbelief is understandable. It's not unreasonable. And those around you who have different beliefs are likely the same. The others saw Jesus. They had a different experience. Jesus had shown them his hands and his sides. They may have even touched those wounds. And Thomas isn't asking for anything more than what they saw and experienced. He needs to understand and to share in that experience. And as I've said before, the best thing that you can do when you are in a state of unbelief is to hang out with those who believe. So like Thomas, I want to encourage you to state your case to your FGs and to others in our faith community on what it is that keeps you from believing. Be honest. What would really make you go all in your faith and to live a life of unfettered joy and freedom. Voice your uncertainties, your doubts, your unbeliefs, and then be willing to be in community and in conversation with those who claim to have met the risen Christ. This leads me to my third reflection. Faith is more relational than reasonable. Faith is more relational than reasonable. I know that many people want proof for faith and especially some sort of absolute or indisputable proof about the resurrection or about God. And many erroneously believe that if they had such proof, they would have enormous faith. But this is simply not true. Jesus told a parable in Luke 16 in which he said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, you might think Jesus is wrong here. That if if you were to see someone rise from the dead, that you would be absolutely convinced that anyone who sees someone rise from the dead would be convinced. But it's not true. A lot of people witnessed what Jesus did. They did not dispute the miraculous nature of his works. They acknowledged that Jesus healed the sick, that he exercised the demons, that he fed thousands, that he opened the eyes of the blind and cleansed the lepers. That he did all this and more was accepted as fact, even by his enemies. But you know what the people did in light of these proofs, these signs? John 12 says that though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. Even when they witnessed Jesus raising the dead, including Lazarus, who had been dead for three days, they did not believe. John 11 says, So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. That's how they responded to someone rising from the dead. Now, you might think you'll be different, and maybe you would be. But for many people, no amount of evidence or proof will make any difference. Even among the disciples who saw the risen Christ, some doubt it i know that when i was younger i wanted these kinds of proofs to rationalize my faith but what i've learned as i've gotten older is that as peter Weiner writes faith is better than proof faith is better than proof it's better because faith is all about relationship not certainties. For example, I can never have absolute mathematical proof that my wife or my kids will continue to love me. But I have faith that they will. I trust them. And that faith, that trust, that relationship is better than any proof. In fact, having some sort of unassailable empirical proof would make choice impossible. And without the freedom of choice, love itself would not be possible and become meaningless. Because love is only meaningful when it is freely given. Or at least I can't imagine being forced to love someone and thinking that that is somehow still love. Harry Harder writes, faith is tied to love in a way that logical deductions and reason are not. We are changed by what we love more than what we think. In other words, the Christian faith is essentially relational, not reasonable. And relationships require trust or faith. When Thomas said, I will never believe, He was not saying, I will never hold certain propositional truths and doctrines to be true. What he was saying is that I will never have a relationship with Jesus. But what happened? Thomas had insisted that there was no way to believe without the proof of touching Jesus. But when Jesus showed up and offered him that opportunity, he didn't take him up on it. Why? Certainly, Jesus showing up unexpectedly inside a locked room would be a powerful and persuasive experience. But I think it's more than that. Did you notice that Jesus responded directly to Thomas and knew exactly what Thomas had wanted? As far as we know, Thomas hadn't told Jesus, but Jesus knew. Now, I suppose we could argue that Jesus knew because, well, God knows everything. But let me suggest this. After Thomas told the other disciples about his unbelief, what do you suppose they did for the next eight days? I would guess that they had a lot of spirited discussions with Thomas, trying to convince him that they had really seen Jesus. And I'm equally certain that they also prayed for Thomas and perhaps with Thomas. Something like, Lord, you know Thomas wasn't with us. We've tried to witness to him, but Lord, you know how darn stubborn he is. And he doesn't believe us. Lord, you showed yourself to us. Could you show yourself to him? Would you allow him to touch your wound so that he can believe? Jesus didn't have to reveal himself to Thomas, but he did. And I believe Jesus came in response to the prayers of his people, the church. And when Thomas saw Jesus and heard him directly addressing him and answering his specific demands to poke around his wounds, Thomas realized that not only is Jesus Lord and God in some abstract or universal or philosophical sense, but that he is his Lord and his God. My Lord and my God, he cried out. It seems to me that it was less about seeing Jesus or touching Jesus, but about being seen and heard by Jesus that led to Thomas's great confession. Thomas realized that Jesus had heard him, that Jesus had been present when he was talking with the other disciples, that Jesus cared for him, and that indeed when two or three or 11 are gathered in his name, Jesus is there. Jesus heard him and he showed up. Jesus is with us even to the end of the age. That's a loving relationship, and that's better than proof. Bruce Larson said this, the events of Easter cannot be reduced to a creed or philosophy. We are not asked to believe the doctrine of the resurrection. We are asked to meet this person raised from the dead. In faith, we move from belief in a doctrine to the knowledge of a person. Ultimate truth is a person. We met him. He is alive. Jesus is better than the proof of his resurrection. And that's the invitation that we have. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in the Gospels. But what we have are there so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that you may know him, the person, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Like Thomas, we were all absent when Jesus first appeared to the disciples. But we have their testimony We have the living witness of the church. And these scriptures are written for us, not as absolute proof, but as faithful, reliable witness so that we can know Jesus and move from unbelieving to believing and believing that we may have eternal life in his name. Please pray with me. Resurrected God, though we often hide ourselves behind locked doors and huddle together in fear, would you send your living word? Send your living word into our guarded hearts that we might be witnesses of your grace and be couriers of your good news. By the power of your Holy Spirit, whom you have given to us, help us to trust the gospel, not because we see it, but because we've been seen by it and transformed through it. Help us to know, to trust, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, raised from the dead. And by believing in him, we might have eternal life. It is through his name, our risen Lord, that we pray as he taught us. Our Father...
0: Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. As the thine his kingdom and power and the glory forever. Amen.